This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing, Jamie Bogner. Uh, we have an interesting conversation today that has uh, happened in a very roundabout way. Um, my guest on the podcast is Matt Riggs from Riggs Beer Company in Urbana, Illinois. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Uh, thank you. Great to be here. Matt reached out to us, I, you know, I guess it was January or so, and pitched the idea of doing an episode of the podcast where we talked about Six Row. They're an uh, old school family farm, and uh, he is a studied brewer who's uh, uh, spent a little over a year uh, in a brewing program in Germany and then brewed professionally in Germany for another year, a few years after that. Um, then came back to the family farm in uh, Illinois and is now working on estate uh, grown grain and brewing with those and kind of carving out a special program there. You can tell us more about that in a second. And I hope I got that history right, Matt. <laughs> yeah, mostly. Yeah, mostly. I, okay. I, went, I worked in the industry in Germany first and then went to school. But yeah, oh, other than that, same. perfect. Yeah. My timeline was slightly off. Um, uh, pitch this idea of talking about six row because certainly it's falling out of, uh, you know, favor with a lot of brewers and of course, maltsters as well. But they are, you know, working with it on the farm and brewing with it, and uh, and so it became a story for the, uh, you know, for the magazine. He actually wrote a brewer's perspective on it. I believe it was for our IPA issue a couple issues ago, and uh, funny, it, it just finally uh, made it to the website last week because we do stagger the content um, to make sure that subscribers are receiving some benefit for what they do, and so magazine will end up on the website. Some of it, not not the entire, uh, you know, magazine content, but some of the content will migrate out to the website. Generally really, you know, you know, three or four months after that issue might hit. Um, so Matt's story made it to the website and we actually had a number of people start emailing us about this story. And one of them was a request to talk to Matt about, um, you know, on the podcast about brewing with six row. And so here we are in that kind of roundabout way, a pitch for the podcast became a magazine story, which then, uh, uh became a conversation on the podcast, but I am excited to talk about it because it's the subject that not a lot of people are focusing on. Uh, certainly six rows storied uh, position in American beer and American brewing um, one that uh, that kind of legacy and uh, some uh, misconceptions about it uh, Matt is going to clear up before we talk about this nearly 2,000 breweries across the US Canada and Mexico partner with GND chillers innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel GND ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs breweries you recognize like Russian River and Kasi Jack's Abbey Samuel Adams Riggs Beer Company. Yeah, breweries and, you don't recognize even. <laughs> and and more. Trust GND to chill the beer you love. Call GND Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. You just bought a second one, right, Matt? Yeah, we just put a second one on an order. We we've gotten along with a seven horsepower unit for um you know, just four and a half years now, and we're we're at the point where we're getting closer to three thousand barrels, and and that seven horsepower unit, even with a big buffer tank, we we needed to get a second one, and we we loved the idea of of buying the exact same unit, um, just so we could swap out parts easily. We knew that it was a good unit, so yeah, we just put our second one on order. Should be sh shipped here uh, any day now. 
That's fantastic. We appreciate their support and have appreciated their support for a long time here on the podcast. Uh, this episode is also brought to you by HS1228 Hops, third in the new BSG Hop Solution portfolio. HS1228 takes you all the way to the heart of the West Coast. HS1228 is bursting with pronounced tropical fruit like mango, pineapple, citrus, and pine characteristics that bring out a classic West Coast hop character. Designed for late kettle or dry hop for various hops forward styles. Learn more about BSG Hop Solutions online and look for more BSG Hop Solutions releases coming very soon. So Matt, um, why don't you walk us through some of your history in brewing and some of the family history of the farm and uh, you know how you got to where you are now making beer on the farm. Well, the story starts um, in Southeast Champaign County, Illinois, where um, my brother and I were born and raised on our family's fifth generation farm. Um, my family's been farming the ground continuously since 1874. Uh, so we're an it was a pretty old farm, but we're not a very big farm. Uh, we never really grew, uh, which in the modern agricultural world of commodity farming um, put us in a in a tough position. We knew from a young age, um, our, our parents were very clear that hey, you're going to have to do something else to supplement the farm income, or really, you know, the farm can supplement your primary income, but it's got to be doing something else. And my brother and I were kind of bummed out about that. Um, we we love the idea of of growing things, um, and we we have a real emotional attachment to the ground itself because it's you know it's five generations of our family, um, it providing for us and and vice versa, and uh, so we kind of started thinking, what can we do outside the box? Ground is very expensive to buy. The return on investment of of Illinois farmland is like 40 or 50 years. So like no bank is, is going to say, Oh yeah, this cash flows, let's do this. Um, and we didn't come from, from money. So just buying more land to scale wasn't an option. So we needed to specialize and, um, you know, in our young adult lives, we started to discover this divine beverage, um, malted, malted beverage called beer. And at, at one point, um, I like to say, I don't remember exactly what brand it is, but let's say it was a uh, 30 pack of Bush light. We were probably about halfway through that bad boy, uh, sitting out in our machine shed. Um, when we were visited by the Bush light angel, um, you know, we were inspired, <laughs> descended upon us and said, you know, boys, this beverage you love so much, it's, you know, primarily grain and water and right. you can grow grain. Why don't you do this? And we were like, Whoa, Bush light angel, you're so wise. Um, Turns out, you know, the Bushlight Angel um, was glossing over some really tough technical hurdles that we'd have to get to, and we didn't have any money, and we didn't have any experience. We had no education, so it took us a while to get there, but, um, you know, I could say now probably 15, 20 years later, that's exactly what we're doing. And so that, that idea's been in, in our heads. My brother and I are, are you know, the two owners here, um, and we work here every day. Uh, it's been on our head for, for well over a decade and, um, it just, it took a long time to get prepared, uh, to do this. You need a lot of money to start a brewery. And, and when you don't have a lot of money, you got to work hard for a lot of years and save it up and you can't just flip a switch and make it happen. So this whole time, you know, the last 15 years or before we could get this thing started, I'm thinking, man, this is a, this is a brilliant concept. We're going to vertically integrate grain from the farm. We're going to add a ton of value to it. I hope other people don't do this before I get a chance to do this and, and box me out of this market. And every year, as you know, we both went to the University of Illinois on military scholarships. Um, 
coming from a small farm family, our parents were like, Hey, figure out a way to pay for college and you can go. So, uh, we did that. And, and, uh, Darren was in the Navy. I was in the Marines. Um, during that whole time, he and I, no matter where we were in the world, were thinking, Hey, do you still want to do this? Yeah. I still want to do this. Do you want to do this? Yeah. Um, are, are is anybody doing this? Like, this has got to, this is going to happen. Craft beer is exploding. This is the right time. One of these days, somebody's going to be growing grain on their farm and vertically integrated into beer. And, and then we'll be like, Hey, we want to do that too. And maybe it won't be as novel. Um, but time kept going by and, and there were a ton of IPAs and there was a ton of trends that, that happened. But I feel like right now is, is really the time when, when vertically integrated grain is starting to become an in thing. And it's really exciting to be part of that. So the initial idea happened, you know, around year 2000 and wow. we've, we rolled it over in our minds over and over. We, we were both military officers for several years, got out of the military and decided at the same time to, to transition into brewing. It, it was really kind of a come to Jesus talk. I, I told my brother one time, I said, Hey, I'm, I'm dropping papers. I'm getting out. I'm going to Germany you should do the same thing. Uh, you should get out and, and get into the brewing industry. So we simultaneously, um, got out of the military and, um, got into brewing. Uh, so why, why'd you, uh, decide to jump out of the military and go to Germany in particular? Well, my wife's a German. Okay. Um, and we'd, we'd been married, um, for several years and, and worked, you know, she, she lived and worked here in the U S and, I was really wanting to get into brewing. You know, I'd, I dipped my toe. My first brewing experience was when I first moved out to San Diego. Um, I was stationed out in Camp Pendleton and just by happenstance walked across long story short. I walked into after a very long voyage, I, I mixed up Escondidas, Escondido and Encinitas. I just moved out there and there was supposed to be an Oktoberfest in one of them. And I went to the wrong one. And then I just walked for miles and, you know, having a good day off. And I stumbled across San Marcos brewery and grill and was like, man, I'm thirsty. It's a brewery and went in there and there's this older guy in the back, uh, looked very hot and uncomfortable. And he eventually came up to the bar and got a glass of water. And I said, Hey, you, you make beer. That's pretty cool. And after a, a, a long conversation, he said, uh, why don't you come help me out for free and I'll give you some food and some beer. And I said, that's awesome. So I, I actually never, um, I didn't start as a home brewer. I started kind of helping out a guy that I just bumped into at the right place at the right time and absolutely fell in love with it. Um, so when, when I decided, Hey, this is definitely actually what I want to do for a living. Um, my wife was like, Hey, we, um, we live here for several years in, in your home country. Why don't you do this brewing thing back where I'm from in Southern Germany? And I said, yeah, I've been to Southern Germany. There's really great beer there. I do owe it to you to live in your country for a while. That's a fair shake. Um, but don't they all speak German over there? <laughs> She's like, yeah, indeed. Indeed they do. But it's super easy. You'll learn it. And that was an oversimplification. That was, un <laughs> that was untrue. German is not right. easy at the age of 28. But that's, that's what we did. We, we sold our house here in the States and, and moved um, to Southern Germany where her family's from and um, started at the very bottom of the, of the ladder at a... Um, very old family owned and operated brewery in Bavaria called Brauhaus Faust in Miltenburg, Germany. Um, fun thing about Faust is they've been making beer in the same location since 1654. They, they haven't moved. So, you know, I, we made beer on the Hauptstrasse, brick lined streets, 
lager caves built into the side of the hill. Every beer we made was open top fermentation, you know, lagers and wheat beers. I got, I got a very traditional um, introduction into Bavarian brewing. I loved a lot of it. Um, one of the downsides is when you open ferment everything um, and you've got a bunch of old horizontal lager tanks that don't have CIP connections. I, I spent about four or five hours every day inside <laughs> of a vessel cleaning. Um, right. One reason we don't have open fermentation here in the brewery, right? It's yeah. like, uh, I don't exactly want to do that anymore. But yeah. Um, yeah. It, was, it was a great experience. Spent a year and a half um, at Faust. Um, at this time, my brother uh, was going to UC Davis to their um, brewing program. Right. And he, he got a job while I was still in Germany at Anheuser-Busch out in California. Thinking, hey, if, nothing, if we never do this farm, you know, integrated brewery, at least we're in a really awesome industry doing something we enjoy. Sure. Um, after about a year at Faust, um, it became pretty clear to me that in order to stay in advance and, and, and get, um, you know, get paid more. Sure. Uh, sure. I would have to probably get certified and you know, through the formal German brewing and malting education system. And, um, at that point in time, I also kind of became pretty confident in my German skills, living and working in a place where you're immersed, you can pick up something fairly quickly. Um, so there's, believe it or not, they don't speak English in a 365 year old Bavarian brewery. So, right. Right. Um, so I decided, you know, I, I need to figure out what pipeline I want to get into. And, and um, I, not a lot of Americans understand the German brewing educational pipeline. So maybe maybe I can clear up sure. uh, for those who are interested. So most most brewers start um, what's called an Ausbildung, where um, after they graduated high school, and there's a couple different levels of high school, but no matter what, you know, you, you close out one of those as early as uh, the age of 16, you can get into a trade apprenticeship program called an Ausbildung, and there's one for brewing and malting. And the way that works is um, a young person finds a brewery or malt house that wants to sponsor them, and essentially they spend half of their time over a three-year period at that company working and kind of learning stuff on the job, and the other half of their time they go to a state-sponsored trade school where they get some general ed classes, but also a lot of kind of um field specific technical training and then um, at the end of the three-year period they pass all the exams and then they they're a certified journeyman brewer um and then the next kind of level in, in brewing is split into two different pipelines you can either do a diploma braumeister and um pipeline where you go to a university and you have kind of a more traditional university style experience, maybe eight hours of classes a week, um, some heavy chemistry and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and usually after two or three years um, passing the exams, you, you get your diploma Braumeister. Uh, the one, the pipeline I went through uh, is similar, but a little bit more condensed and a little more trade focused. That is the Handwerks Braumeister and Maltmeister. Um, Handwerk, you know, handwork. It's like craft trade school. Um, the requirements to, to go there is you need to either have been an Ausgebildete, so gone through the Ausbildung Brewer, or um, you, you need to have a pre-existing degree and a year, a year and a half of, of on-the-job training. 
And um, because I'd already had a degree from the US and I'd had the on-the-job training, it's a little bit more condensed, um, but it's more intense. We were uh, about 40 hours a week in the classroom for a full year. Wow. So those are the two different pipelines. They both have their pros and cons. I'm super glad that I got to, um, that I chose the one I did. The advantage, in my opinion, of the, the Handwerksmeister route is that, you know, I, in my class of 35 other brewers, every single one of them w had been through the Ausbildung. Um, except there were three or four foreigners. You know, we had a Cuban, myself, a Belgian, and a Korean. Um, and obviously, we kind of went the other way because we don't have those programs in our home countries. But every German had had been through the the three year Ausbildung program. A lot of them had then worked a decade at their brewery before they're yeah. like, "Hey, I'm taking the next step." So the the intense kind of resident knowledge, not just from the faculty, but also from the students, uh, made it a, an awesome experience. Like I sat behind a guy who had filtered like 7 million hectoliters <laughs> of Eichbaum right. beer in Mannheim. And I'm like, you know, so when the professor gets up there and talks about filtering it, it it's not just a one-way conversation. The guy's right. like, well, right. hold on a second. There's, there's a lot of ways to achieve that goal. So it was a, it was a great, great learning experience. Um, I went to Domans in Munich and, and had a great time. Yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit about now coming back to, um, the, back to the farm and, you know, conceiving of a brewing program. Before we do that, this episode is brought to you by Mountain Rose Herbs, purveyors of the highest quality organic herbs, spices, and teas. Whether you want to add depth to your next golden triple with classic notes of cinnamon, pepper, and clove, or artfully layer exotic zesty grains of paradise into a perfect ale, adding botanicals to your brewing is an easy way to customize a delicious flavor profile. Mountain Rose Herbs has been providing organic herbs and spices to chefs, herbalists, and dedicated brewers for more than three decades. Learn more at mountainroseherbs.com and get 10% off your first order with the code craftbeer10. Also, Yakima Valley Hops is your hop source, whether you're brewing five gallons or five barrels. Get all the hops you want when you want them. They source the highest quality hops from the Yakima Valley and premium growing regions around the world so that you have access to the largest hop portfolio possible, even hard to find varieties like Citra, Nelson Sauvin, and Galaxy. Homebrewers, visit yakimavalleyhops.com and wholesale accounts can find them at spothops.com. So Matt, you come back, you know, you've, you've done your apprentice, you've, you've done your semi-apprenticeship at Faust. You've uh, studied for an intense year at Domans. You know, you come back to launch the brewery uh, on the family farm and you start conceiving of the beers you're going to make and how those integrate in this vertically integrated uh, kind of farm brewery. Talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, that approach as you started to think about what we're going to make and how we're going to make it relevant to, to drinkers, but also connect it back to the farm. Well, we didn't put all our eggs in one basket and say that we're going to be, you know, from the get-go to a very large degree a vertically integrated brewery because that would have been very foolish. Um, trying to grow barley in a place where nobody's grown barley in 70 years and then saying, oh, I'm going to make malting quality barley my first year and that's just going to make great beer. That would have been pretty foolish. So we took a pretty measured approach, I think, in the beginning. You know, um, we knew that there, at least in our area, breweries weren't really focusing on German styles. So we said, okay, we're going to make German styles beers and we're going to make them authentically and, and, and accurately. Um, and we're going to play around with and try to ramp up where we can any, any ingredient 
grain wise that we can grow. Um, but it wasn't like, hey, from the get go, this is going to be a defining characteristic uh, because we weren't sure that it was going to work. Um, I had never made a beer with adjuncts like in ever. Yeah. Right. In years in brewing. They don't exactly do that in Germany. Right. Um, let alone whole kernel corn. We, you know, where you Darren worked, they they use um, usually corn grits or, or rice. Um, we didn't know it would work. So we actually we came back and said, well, first things first, let's grind up some corn and, you know, look online. There's these old recipes of how they used to do it. So let's try to do it that way. And it worked like it worked really, really well. We just crushed corn and did the gelatinization double mash. And it was like, wow, this, this lager turned out pretty darn good. Just with field corn right out of our grain bin. Um, so the, the corn piece was easy. We'd already been farming corn. We had all the equipment to, to clean and, and dry and store and handle corn. Um, wheat and barley, we started with very small plots. And um, you know, convincing my dad to, to take some acreage out of our normal commercial corn and soybeans, that was not an easy conversation. At first, it was like, this is a terrible idea. No way. Um, why don't you do it in a garden first? I'm like, Dad, we actually need like an acre. Please give me an acre to gamble with. And he's like, uh, all right, take your acre. And, um, we slowly over the course of five years have been kind of gathering data and getting better every year with, with some missteps. I mean, there's definitely been some mistakes and we can, we can talk about those, but, um, it definitely wasn't something where we we're like, Hey, from the get go, this is going to be a totally vertically integrated brewery. And it's still not right. It's never right. going to be, I'm, I'm always going to want to make a Hellas with all imported two row Pilsner malt from Germany. Um, there's no replacement for that. And I love me some Hellas, so we're not going to be a hundred percent our own grain. I just, I don't think you can, you can accurately recreate, um, that beer style using Illinois grown barley. That's, that's fair enough. And, you know, I think that as breweries everywhere try to, as, as, as consumers grow more focused on things with meaning and things with connection, especially, you know, with on those local things. Um, you know, I've tried to figure out like culturally speaking, why is this, you know, what is driving this, you know, this move to local. And I think that we're, you know, we're experiencing both of this simultaneous culture of infinite availability and, you know, free two day delivery via Amazon of any product that you might want anywhere. And so, you know, in this kind of a cultural environment, the things that people start to be then prize again on this kind of meta level are the things that are harder to get or the things that feel more local and connected, the things that other people may not be able to experience outside of a time and a place. And so, you know, in, in that sense, having a connection, matters um doesn't need to be the only thing that you do and obviously it's not you know i think we all uh you know there's very few people outside of you know those brewers that are in you know yakima or the willamette valley or uh on the the you know midwestern uh you know kind of side of idaho that could even brew with all estate ingredients just because you know hops no offense to the northern Illinois landscape, they're just not going to grow there, you know, in the kind of quality and the quantity that you want. So, um, you know, but having said that, you have kind of carved out, um, you know, especially brewing on, you know, the American uh, lager side, 
a uh, you know bringing back this tradition of brewing with six row barley and using that corn adjunct from your farm talk to me a little bit about formulating that kind of idea especially now in a world of of malt where it is increasingly hard to even find six row um and you've you grow it yourself on the farm and then brew with it now yep that's right um so we started off uh very first batches of American lager commercially here, we we were using all two-row North American barley and um, our just yellow field corn that was going to go to the elevator and we were going to get $4 a bushel for, um, which which is not very much. It's very tough to make money at that yeah. price point, which is, which is why we're doing the brewery, right? Um, so we started off doing it that way and really in, in corn brewing, there's, there's a couple different forms you can use corn in, you know, a lot of home brewers will use flakes and, and even commercial brewers that have a two vessel system. They'll use corn flakes that have already been gelatinized, kind of milled and gelatinized. Um, that allows you to just smash at one temperature and, and get conversion and everything. Um, big brewers will, will use grits. Some big brewers, um, will use grits, which have been de-germed or that's the term for removing the oily portion of the corn. Corn has a fair amount of oil and, and that can be negatively, um, negatively sensoric and it's not good for the foam. There's, there's a lot of reasons sure. why we want to lower oil or, you know, some brewers, you've probably seen a Super Bowl commercial talking about corn syrup, right? That's already been converted. So you don't even need to worry about enzymes or anything. We wanted to do the old way that nobody was really doing anymore, which is crushing corn and putting it in an adjunct mash. Um, and we, we definitely found that using normal standard number two yellow dent field corn did carry some oil and some corn characteristic over into the finished product. It was, it made the beer a little bit different. Um, but I think more often than not, sensorically, we were thinking, Hey, this is just a little bit too corny. Even at 20% of the grist, there, there's too much corn tortilla being brought into, um, the finished beer flavor which um then kind of led us to think well we don't want to get a degermer that's expensive and it's kind of taking us towards the more modern style we want to stay old school one day i literally just typed into google and if you do this now any of the listeners do this now if you type in low oil corn um either the top or i think now there's a farm progress article about about us but now now it's the second it used to be the top <laughs> art, um response was um the illinois long-term selection experiment um, ran at the University of Illinois in a little town called Urbana. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I was like, no kidding. close to you, huh? <laughs> Yeah. One of my old professors uh, is in charge of this experiment that started in 1896. And it is the longest running continuous natural selective trial in higher order plants in the world. Right. So very long every year. What they've been doing is they took a, a variety of corn in 1896 that that was actually taken from a farmer about four miles from our farm. So it's, it's really cool. All the synergies in this story and every year they select for high and low protein and high and low oil. And then they, they take those plants and then every year they try to drive those, those values further and further, just naturally through, through selection and to see what mother nature can do and how far to push it. Um, and I was like, wow. Okay. So th somebody at the U of I campus has, the lowest oil corn in the world. I wrote the, the lab and they wrote right back and were super excited because commercially there's a bunch of uses for high oil or high protein. They have never had anybody ever care about the low oil variant. And literally they had like a handful of these seeds 
that were just enough to keep the experiment going so that they wouldn't lose their, their status as the longest running continuous right. trial and all that. <laughs> and they're like, oh, you're interested in low oil? Give me a year and I can prop you up a couple pounds of corn. And in two years, maybe we'll have enough to try a batch. And I'm like, you get to work on that, sir. Do that <laughs> because I am so excited about trying this low oil corn. And, and the added bonus, it's white corn. So um, the chemical compounds that make corn yellow, um, we're also darkening the beer and they've got actually some flavor compounds that we think were, were influencing the, the nacho, uh, sure, beer. Sure. So it was like, man, this is a dream come true. And, and so after a couple of years of them propagating up some seed, we were able to try it out and, um, it's definitely helped. I mean, we cut the oil in the corn in half naturally without wow. having to do anything. And it's also fun to say, hey, we're the only commercial users of this really long experiment at our land-grant college right here in town. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. And, and we haven't changed the ratio, so we're still using um, 20% corn. But the corn character in the beer is, is mark, had been marketably reduced um, to the point where it, there's, a, there's an added depth, I think, in the beverage but it doesn't really say I'm corn. It just says I'm, I'm kind of a well-rounded and layered simple lager. And so that's the big key was, was moving, finding a low oil corn that was white and, um, using it. And then we, we, our first couple of crops of barley were two row because we'd been told, you know, everybody's moving to two row. It's right. just inherently better. Uh, it, it wasn't until we, we ran into some agronomic problems that we started to think, hey, we need to like hedge our bets and maybe try some, some older genetics that have worked better around here. Because at this brewery, you know, the farmer sure. is the brewer. And, and so like if the farmer says, hey, this two rows a deal breaker, I'm getting killed over here. It's economically not feasible. Um, we're the same people. So we're like, all right, well, let's let's look at six row. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crack open a, one of the can of your uh, American lager. Uh, since we're talking about it, I just feel like um, it makes some sense to drink some too. And uh, you sent me some corn samples here and I did nibble on them while we were talking about that. Uh, and it is interesting. It's certainly, uh, you know, it's kind of a different, um, and I can see that kind of drier, low oil kind of approach to this. It, it seems like it's um, like a pre-prepared drier grain, just, you know, for exactly what you're talking about. It's very powdery, right? I mean, so it's all starch. Mm -hmm. Um, everything has to add up to a hundred percent in a seed. And if you've lowered oil, then yeah. starch kind of fills that gap. So it's just this, this low oil white corn we're using. It's very powdery. It's very neutral. It doesn't have a lot of tortilla flavor. If, if I gave you a handful right. of yellow field corn that we grow on our farm, it'd be very corny. Um, but, but this stuff just eating it, you can tell it brings a lot more neutral um, flavor right. and and texturally you can tell that there's more starch there and, and less oil. So how much is dad letting you grow of, uh, of this corn on the farm right now? Uh, we have taken over the decision making. <laughs> he, yeah, no, he's, he's, he's happy to admit that he, he's, he was probably a little bit mistaken in doubting that this could work. Yeah. And at this point he's like, all right, boys, you got it. Do what you want to do. And <laughs> to be fair, you know, of our 316 acres, this, this last year, only 60 of those acres were brewing ingredients. The rest of it was still conventionally farmed, yeah. but 60 acres makes an immense amount of beer. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've actually got a calculation here. So, uh, one acre of barley 
that we grow will make about 80 kegs of beer. One acre of wheat will make about 175 kegs. And this is assuming that we're making a 100% um, beer with that grain and right. we're not making 100% right. wheat beer. And then um, even the low oil corn yielding half of what modern commercial varieties do, we still would get 218 kegs per acre. So we can we can make a lot of kegs of beer with not a lot of acres. It's an interesting one. And, you know, as you alluded to before, you know, commercial agriculture pushing towards commodity pricing and farmers, you know, taking that easy route of filling up the, you know, the uh, silos, you know, taking their, their crop to the, the uh, local grain bins you know, is a low profit, low value kind of proposition. And, you know, what you are doing with that family farm is creating a much higher value proposition, um, you know, and increasing the value of that crop along the value chain by imbuing it, not just with meaning, but also, you know, a story and, uh, you know, specific usage that is, um, you know, not a commodity at all. The fact that, um, you know, you're growing six row barley on the farm and, and no one else is in generally in the state of Illinois, or, I mean, there may be some grown in the state of Illinois, but you may, um, you are some of the, no, no, some of the few doing that. Um, the fact that you may be the only place growing this kind of corn variety creates a specific value to that. Um, and it's a nice departure from this corporate model of farming that is simply about scale and about producing, you know, the greatest amount of goods at the lowest cost uh, possible price, you know? And, and so from a family perspective, how has that impacted the way that the finances of the farm work uh, and the way that you're able to kind of, you know, account for the value of these crops in a different way than you used to? Yeah. So the farm didn't invest in the brewery and, and to be, totally clear. We, we don't want that, right? We wanted to keep this a completely separate entity. Uh, you don't have a fifth generation family farm and then mortgage it to start a new business, yeah. right? Because yeah. that's how you end at five generations. And, and so we, we wanted to be completely separate entities. We pay the, the farm a premium to grow us a premium specialized product. Um, and we kind of have to work at getting, identifying the fair price backwards. Our goal is to make one acre of brewing grain, 125% um, the profitability of what that acre would do on the commercial market if it was making commercial grain. So we don't just say, hey, you know, my I can get barley from this supplier at 60 cents a pound. That's, you know, I'll, I'll pay you 80. Um, we go completely the opposite direction and say, it's irrelevant what the, the market price for it is. We're gonna keep separate books and at the end of the year, we're going to look at um, the profitability on the commercial side. And then we're going to assign a price that achieves 125%, you know, an increase, an additional 25% profitability for the farm, um, which, which means that we grow some very expensive barley. It's not, it does not make any real commercial sense for the brewery, um, but it does make commercial sense for the family farm. And that's, that's one way that we hope we can usher it into the sixth generation is that we're given it kind of an unfair advantage on getting, we're paying, we're paying 12 to $14 a bushel for, for wheat and barley. And that's just crazy. That's like three or four times the market price. But the, luckily there's profitability in, in, in brewing. Um, and three or four times the market price, but that's actually not out of line for what craft brewers will pay for general craft malt, you know, from a outside maltster. Um, it's 
more yeah well but that's not including malting costs oh, i'm right, just saying okay. raw gotcha. i'm just saying raw oh, grain okay. yeah no okay. we take a bath on the malting as well um <laughs> okay but it you gotta think we don't sure. we don't yeah it, it's really kind of expensive people yeah. say oh you must be saving a lot of money vertically integrating it's like no we are losing money vertically integrating right. but we're, we're also pretty unique in a field of eight thousand brewers um and we don't have a marketing budget really we don't spend any money on 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 uh, doing stuff out out in the market, we've we've never had a salesperson to brewery. We we rely on our wholesalers to do that. Um, so I can kind of justify it in saying, hey, us doing this really tangible, cool thing, that's our marketing budget, and that's what makes us unique. And and so far, it's it's worked pretty well. Let's dive into. Uh, oh, sorry, where do you malt then? Uh, you know these grains. Do you, is there a local craft maltster that'll take? Because you're talking about low volume malting now here too. Yeah. So. Several years ago, um, I was back from Germany visiting, helping with the harvest one year, and, and I went to a homebrew club meeting, and everybody was, uh, wanted me to meet this this crazy guy named Eric who was bringing malt malt samples to the homebrew club, and he wanted to start a malt house, and people were like, yeah, but you know, I've tried some, and it's, I haven't had very good success because these people are all doing single temperature infusion, you know, homebrew, and they're not getting good extraction or, or whatever, and. I'm like, yes, I do need to meet this guy. So, uh, we met each other and, and, um, started talking. He, he farms 40 miles North of us. So, uh, pretty, pretty local. And, and he has had like a lifelong passion of malting grain. And he really thought that five or 10 years ago, you know, the market was going to open up and all these Chicago breweries were going to come down and want to, want to buy his grain. And again, the problem is, not a lot of places are outfitted with with a system that can really uh, modify either thermally or, or enzymatically to correct for some deficiencies in locally grown grain. You're going to have a, a fairly inconsistent product. And the, if the brewery isn't fully invested in that maltster and saying, I'm going to share that risk with you, um, which very few breweries are willing to do, right. then, then you don't get a malting industry. Um, especially at the very small scale, um, that we've got with him. So we, we literally will take a wagon, wagon of wheat and barley uh, up to his farm and, you know, we help him out. We, I was up there last week helping him build his new kiln. Um, we clean grain up there together. We, we help automate his, his malting system. My brother's a computer guy. So, um, helped him out with that. So it's, we've kind of got our own personal maltster, um, and it's, it's it's a necessary marriage between a very committed brewery and a very committed malt house that rely on each other for for stability. That's a fantastic story. As I'm drinking this uh, American lager, I am incredibly impressed. Just I mean, the foam alone is beautiful, glassy, thick, um, long lingering. Um, so. Now let's talk about the construction of this beer, um, because I really want to get into, you know, I mean, it, it is every bit as classically constructed as a beautiful German lager, and yet this is American ingredients right out of your, your farm in Illinois. Before we talk specifically about that, if you're looking to start or expand your craft brewery, look no further than Abe Beverage Equipment for complete brewing and packaging solutions. Abe has been a trusted partner for over 1,000 breweries worldwide and is known for their excellent service. Contact Abe today for a quote on a complete brew system at abeequipment.com. Abe offers turnkey solutions from three to 60 barrel brew houses and canning lines from 15 to 90 cans per minute. Visit abeequipment.com for complete brewery solutions. Matt, you guys have an Abe brew house, don't you? 
we love G&D and we love Abe. We love these sponsors. Yeah, we, our <laughs> Abe Brewhouse is an absolute beast. We, they I swear, this is totally coincidental. I, we really yeah. didn't, uh, we're having this conversation right now. <laughs> so I'm, I'm literally at German Brewing School and thinking, okay, I want to design this four-vessel system with all these cool German pathways to, to do all the stuff that I want to do. And I reached out to, back then it was American Beer Equipment, ABE, now it's Abe, uh, same great people. And they worked with me to design, they had never done one before and they designed one with me and man, it's awesome. And there's almost nothing I would change about it. And we just did our 600th uh, turn on it and I've had to replace almost nothing. It is an amazing piece of kit. Well, you heard it from Matt. Uh, I didn't even need to do the read. I should have just let you do that one. Um, also, if you enjoy this podcast and you want to help us uh, continue to bring you valuable content from the world's best brewing minds, Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions are the best way to do it. Get a year of the print and digital editions of the magazine, plus access to our library of video courses, a special deep dive email, and more. Go to beerandbrewing.com and click on the subscribe button to join now. And you may read occasional stories from Matt that have been in the, in the issue. And I imagine we'll have to continue talking about some more in the future uh, because this is fascinating. And I love what you're doing in this uh, in this world of vertical integration. So, Matt, let's talk about American uh, American lager and, uh, you know, kind of formulating an idea between Look, your six grown, uh, your uh, locally grown six row barley, I shouldn't even call it locally, your estate grown uh, six row barley, and you know, then this kind of 20% core ingredient. When you, we started talking about six row barley, um, how did where did you come up with um, you know, the specific varieties that you decided to plant on the farm? And then as you were conceiving of the recipe, talk to me about that development process and how you worked through an iterative process to get the beer where you want it to be. The iteration is continuous and the varieties, the search for, for new varieties will never end. Um, so we haven't said that we were like exactly where we want to be and we're just going to stay there. Um, we're open to new ideas all the time. We've thrown a lot of stuff at the wall at, um, agronomically to see what, what will work. And sometimes it works once, but then it doesn't work again. And that's not good enough. We needed to work like five out of six times before we're okay with that risk. Um, and so that's how this process started. We started with a German um, two-row variety, a spring two-row called Thessa. Um, actually, our first ever crop, trial crop, was a spring six-row uh, robust from North American variety. Then moved to Thessa. Um, we ended up figuring out that it did. It liked Central Europe a lot more than it liked Central Illinois. Um, I think that that crop we harvested had 556 ppm of beta glucan, um, which made for a very interesting barley wine um, that had like. <laughs> a, I've still got a bottle. We bottled, hand bottled one bottle, just because I never want to forget this. And literally, there's a beta glucan layer on the bottom half of the bottle. It's the wildest <laughs> thing. Whenever brewers come and 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 want to nerd out about stuff, I'm like, hey, I got to show you this barley wine bottle with 556 ppm beta glucan. Um, then we tried a winter variety, Wint Malt, two-row, um, and actually we're very happy with it. Um, that next year we went, uh, we were going to try another two-row variety over the winter, Violetta. Um, and that fall we had planted, the previous fall we had planted a six-row spring variety called Lacey. Um, Lacey's a, the variety that we planted the most of. Um, spring six-row, it, it just doesn't die on us and it doesn't get us things that are so far out of spec that we can't salvage it. So I don't think it's necessarily the best, um, 
variety of barley for us to grow forever. Um, but it's one where I know we can at least salvage. We will have Riggs estate barley if we plant Lacey. Um, part, of, part of that reason is because in the spring, you know, the winter can't kill it. So we, we are guaranteed that it's not going to get a winter kill and we will have something to harvest. Um, the Violetta crop that I mentioned in 2019, January 2019, got just decimated by some cold weather. Um, we've never had a, a six-row variety um, do that on us. So we, we this year planted Thoroughbred. Uh, we harvested it in mid-June. Um, that's a winter six-row variety, North American, um, obviously. And, and the, the initial malt analysis, raw grain malt analysis back on the thoroughbred is the best we've ever seen. So I think we're getting, we're getting better, but really like if, if somebody tells me there's a new variety that's, that's got good characteristics and, and I can, you know, nerd out on it a little bit and say, yep, this is a good prospect. I'll put in five acres of it. Absolutely. Cause I don't think on the barley side, we have not found the Holy grail because we're so far outside kind of the prime growing region and we're going to continue to try anything. Um, but we've definitely seen a lot more success with six row as compared to two row on the farm. And that just made it an obvious decision for us to, to stick with it. And, and then it became a thing. Like as soon as I started talking to maltsters and figuring out that nobody was making six row and it wasn't going to be for sale anymore. I actually had somebody email me the other day from down in Texas. They want to buy six row off of us, a brewery because they, they want to make a pre pre prohibition lager, right. and I'm like, I guess we're now a malt house, like a malt supplier. That's uh, we we've gotten a lot of feedback on the article as well, and and it's actually kind of fun now to say, hey, we're gonna we're gonna continue this tradition, and I don't care if if they breed two row to the point where, you know, it kind of takes all of the incentive away from six row. It's it's kind of fun to brew with an ingredient that that has a unique American origin and that not everybody's doing or very few people are. Doing. There's you know for commercial six row now what like maybe one malt house in north america that is consistently um still supplying it so uh it is a a kind of a, a dying thing at the same time you know there have been some really interesting revivals of six row on the craft malt side and i know the folks down at riverbend and in, in north carolina you know we're trying to find barley that'll grow in north carolina they've yes it two row does not grow very well down there six row uh, grows much better i know that they've been uh, working on that kind of locally grown six row and so it does seem as if craft malt in a, in a broader sense is the one way to kind of keep this um this kind of you know native north american barley alive and growing um Talk to me a little bit about the malt process then for this. You know, you you harvest, you dry it, you know, you, um, you know, but then when it comes to like creating malt specs, you're now dealing with a, uh, you know, you're, you're, you can actually malt it to exactly, you know, the, what you want in the brew house. And, and then, um, and, I'm, and so I'm curious about that kind of process. I'm also curious then how, because you're working at this kind of scale, you look uh, and evaluate the quality of that malt and then you know even as you're brewing with it understand how you know um year to year or even batch to batch um or even portions of the the field versus others yeah uh, what kind of variety exists and what kind of parameters you're working with um on a, at a brewing level for this kind of variation um you know again i'm curious you know from your perspective of, of brewing with it what that range looks like for you, how you kind of accommodate fluctuations year to year, batch to batch, 
area to area, terroir to terroir and whatnot? Well, I think the first thing um, a, a brewer's got to do is say, you know, I'm not going to sacrifice quality just because I want something really bad. Um, the American lager you're drinking right now has got some two row in it. Um, that's because this last year of, of six row, we had some fairly high protein level um, that even when you cut it with corn, um, by the time it got out of the malt house, our free amino nitrogen was, was at, you know, in the 170s. And that carries a flavor impact that if you go 100% with a six row variety, six row variety of, of malt that has 170 ppm a fan, I think you're gonna in a pale beer, in a pale neutral lager, you're gonna taste it. Now I can put that in our IPL. There's no way you're gonna pick it up. I can I can put that in a Kolsch, and I think I can even hide it with some ester. Um, the first thing you got to do is say, you know, let's not force it. I got, I've got beer drinkers that support us. And they don't want a huge amount of variation. I think that they're understanding that being a smaller brewery, you're going to see a little bit of variation. But I, I kind of abuse their trust, I think, if, if I say, well, I don't care if this year's barley crop um, gave me too much or too little of something, I'm going to use it anyway. Um, we have to be careful to balance our desire to vertically integrate with our desire to make great beer. So that's the first thing. Um, We've made a lot of 100% six-row beers, but at, with the, the um, lacy six-row variety from last year, the way we farmed it, we, we couldn't get it to the point where uh, we've made a few batches of American lager. We pushed it. We've tested it. And honestly, it's been like, no, we can't go 100% this year. Um, I'm really excited about the thoroughbred. We got the, the protein out of the field down to 9.3, which is like even lower than spec. So I'm very confident that we're going to be able to, to integrate that one at hundred percent. You just can't push it too hard because you're going to burn people. You're going to burn a consumer and, and you might have a great story, but consumers want to drink a beer that, um, is consistently the, the same and really good. You know, if we had a different brand or, or like I said, on the IPL, a lot of times we'll, we'll be able to push it. We'll, we'll blend in more of our outer out of spec grain into our more flavorful beers and we'll keep our tightest in spec grain for our most neutral beers. Um, if you, if you aren't doing that, then, and you're trying to grow grain on a small local scale, I think that you're either going to be wasting a lot of grain, um, or you're going to be putting out product that is, that is inconsistent because there is a ton of variability from year to year and our agronomic processes are, are different every year. We're getting better. And I think that the left and right limits of, of where most of those specifications are, are getting tighter, but we're still not at the point where every year, every crop, I can go 100% on our most neutral beers. And so, what's that testing process look like? Do you you send out the you know each of the malted batches to a lab to kind of analyze this, or are you you know kind of analyzing before malting, after? What, what is the what does that kind of analytical process look like? Yep. So step one is we send the raw grain off for analysis. So we like to harvest a little bit early, um, a little bit wet. That's going to keep us from getting pre-germinative sprout in the field, which, which really messes up numbers very quickly. If you get moisture right before harvest, you get some grain that already germinates and, and that it's tough to salvage that grain. So we like to come in, harvest the grain at 16 to 18% moisture, get it straight into a grain bin and, and hit it with a lot of air and dry it down to 14 and a half, 14 and a half um, moisture, 
Uh, that's kind of like your summer safe zone. It's about as fast at as low as you can go as quickly as you can go with grain bin air in our area. Cause it's just so humid for the long term, You want to get down to, you know, 12% moisture, but you just can't achieve that in the summer in central Illinois. So we get it down to 14 and a half percent moisture. Um, at that point, we run it through a grain cleaner, um, over a gravity table, and that helps, um, you know, any dead or diseased grains we can remove, um, any weed seed or chaff we can remove. So we, once we get a good clean sample, we send a raw grain analysis to Hartwick College out in New York, um, where Aaron McLeod and his team have done a really great job of, of getting this quick turnaround. Um, that raw grain analysis is going to tell us a handful of things, you know, our total protein, Obviously, the, the normal spec is 95 to 11.5% for two row. Um, six row, you can kind of go up towards, towards 12, but I'm telling you, if you want to use 100% your own grain and you're above 12, um, it better be in a wheat beer. Um, it can't be in a pale lager, or it doesn't matter the amount of corn that you're going to cut it with. It's, you can't recover from that. We're going to look at disease. Um, so fusarium head blight or Don vomitoxin. Um, we got to be under one PPM in the finished product. Um, to, to give it to humans. So um, that drives, you know, our crop rotation. Both of those factors drive our crop rotation. Um, we've stopped using any fertilizer in the field um, because we found any applied nitrogen is going to drive us above the protein level um, mm. that we're shooting for. So we just rely on planting into either red clover or soybean residue. Um, both of those crops fix some nitrogen naturally you achieve the added bonus of being more environmentally sound because you're not applying any nitrogen. Um, we've found that, that at least for barley, you've really got to hit it with fungicide every year in this hot, humid climate, or else your, your vomitoxin levels are going to be too high to use in a human product up North. You can probably get away with not doing that in wheat We're we're experimenting with, with not doing that. Uh, wheat tends to, to resist that fungus a little bit more. So those are the things we look at a raw grain analysis. And that tells us then how we need to work with Eric to take those things that are out of spec and try to nudge them in spec in the malt house. And luckily in Germany, brewing and malting is a combined trade. Um, you can't be a brewer without being a maltster and, and vice versa. So um, a big part of brewing school in Germany is, is malting school, um, more so than I think in, in, in the US. Uh, so. I got exposed to a fair amount of, of malting theory and, and practice, and that allows us to kind of, I'm glad I did. I, I'm sitting there with my classmates thinking, um, you know, these guys are never going to use this, but this could be really helpful <laughs> if I'm going to like grow barley on my farm sure, to, sure. to think. It used to be the classic brewmaster question is, you know, you've got barley from this field and these are the specifications. How do you malt it and how do you brew it? in order to hit your target on the, on the back end. That's, that's kind of like the classic German brewmaster exam question is with this out of spec barley, turn it into this Hellas. And, uh, that turned out to be pretty, pretty useful. So we, we have a raw grain analysis and then each batch of malt, um, we then send back to Hartwood college for a malt analysis that gives us a whole bunch of other traits, um, that we're looking for. So, um, big things there. We're looking to make sure that we didn't damage the enzyme. Uh, we've got, the alpha and beta that we're looking for. Um, the protein fractioning is huge, not just total protein, but you know what, how much of that protein is what size, um, middle molecular weight or, or fan or insoluble protein. That's going to be, um, very important to us. The friability meter word, I just said vert, 
I'm switching between German and English. <laughs> the friabilimeter value um, is, is, is a nice value that the industry places a lot of emphasis on. But I can tell you, I had a batch of batch six Lacey that came back to us a couple months ago. And the friabilimeter value was the best we've ever had. It was, it was right in there in commercial spec. A lot of the other indications on that on that spec sheet were in spec. And that's where I'm like, okay, this batch, we're going back to 100%. We're going we're gonna to do it. And I... And I can taste the free amino nitrogen. I can taste the, yeah. that that American lager, when we went to 100%, even though everything else was in spec, that was enough on a pale lager to say, nope, we still got to blend that crop year because we can't get that fan number down. So you have malt coming in now, you know, out of the monster, you know what the specs are. Um, you know, talk, talk to me a little bit about um, how, you know, what that brewing process looks like now with this six row. Obviously, you're doing a lot to promote, you know, foam retention in the beer. It looks gorgeous. As uh, Stephen from Hogshead would say, the foam is telling a story. As we get through the glass, you know, there are layers of foam kind of, you know, sitting there like it is a, you know, it's a beautiful approach. You don't just get that from a single infusion mash and, you know, and pushing that out there. So talk to me a little bit about that process of brewing with um, both six row and two row, obviously, since you're, you're blending those together, but uh, pushing this in an American uh, light lager, you know, you know, first from, you know, how those kind of grains break out on a percentage kind of basis, and then, you know, how you then go through that mash process to, um, to conceive of a beer that's going to, you know, achieve this kind of drinking experience that you're looking for. Right. So the first thing we'll do is identify our most out of spec barley. Um, under modified, so friabilimeter value of like 72, um, coarse fine crush difference of, of like five, right? So this is highly under modified. This is grain that you can't even buy. Even the under modified stuff, I guarantee you the, the, the coarse fine difference isn't five, right? But we have that barley sometimes on some batches from some fields. Um, we identify that and that becomes our adjunct mash barley. So um, the, the cool thing about using raw corn is you have to gelatinize it and gelatinization temperature is pretty close to decoction temperature. So we can take our, our most out of spec, most underfied, under modified barley and do include that in the gelatinization, you know, adjunct mash where what we're doing is we're thermally rupturing cell wall, um, that normally in the malt house would have been enzymatically broken down to, to allow enzyme to, to access starch while those, those walls are still up. And that's why the, the coarse fine difference is so large is because in the lab, the, the crush is, is crushing that cell wall mechanically on the fine grind, but not on the coarse grind. Um, we aren't going to like hammer mill the grain that would cause, cause some issues and we don't have one, but we can thermally rupture that at the same time that we're doing a gelatinization uh, rest with the, with the adjunct, with the corn. So our worst stuff goes in the adjunct. Um, we're actually kind of experimenting with how high that can go. Um, we started off pretty conservatively, but now, um, I think close to like 20% of our overall barley will also go into the adjunct mash. We do a sacrification rest on the way up anyway, so we're not necessarily wasting all the enzyme that, that's getting denatured in the gelatinization, uh, temperature zone. We, we are letting it convert any starch that it's got. Uh, in its own barley first that it has access to there's, we think there's probably some starch in the corn that it has access to even pre-gelatinization but then after holding it that sacrification rest we bring it up we thermally um, gelatinize the corn starch and then we're also 
rupturing cell wall and thereby thermally modifying under-modified barley. So we, we kill two birds with one stone in the adjunct mash, and then we, we save our best um, grain for uh, most in-spec. I love all our grain, right? Uh, it's like children. <laughs> I love all my barleys. Uh, but uh, we save the most in-spec grain, most modified grain, to go ahead and go in the main mash where we just do a standard uh, kind of low-end protein rest. I'm always kind of a fan of the lower lower end of the protein scale. That gives us more of that middle molecular weight protein that is good for um, foam, and especially in a beer where we're going to have some some even low oil corn, um, bringing some oil. I think throwing more middle molecular weight protein at it helps f- fight that oil's um, foam negative characteristics. And then uh, yeah, we just kind of do a standard beta rest and then alpha beta hybrid rest um, to depending on how dry we want to dry the beer out. Um, different varieties are going to attenuate differently, just like different yeast strains will. So different varieties attenuate differently. Um, we've had to actually shorten our beta rest quite a bit in order to, to not attenuate too much. Um, in the beginning I was worried about, Hey, I want to get really dry beer. I'm going to drive this four vessel system to its maximum ability to attenuate. But we were, we were seeing, you know, final gravity, or attenuation is probably a better number to give you attenuation, like 85%. Wow. And, and, you know, in a, in a beer that's 5% ABV 85, that's, that's pretty hot. That's pretty dry. So we've actually shortened our beta rest over the couple, last couple of years down to, you know, 30 minutes or so. And then, and then did the alpha beta rest after that. Um, I don't know if that answers the question, but a little bit, a little bit of detail there on how we take our, our worst stuff. And yeah. if, if we're, if we're going to get it hot anyway, with the corn, we, we might as well rupture some cell wall and thermally modify it that way. It makes sense. What's the, what's the goal for uh, finishing gravity now on the American lager? Um, low twos. Okay. So, you know, two, one, two, two, I think is, is what I like to see most. Um, original gravity on that guy's 11, six. Okay. And then, um, you know, do you have an IBU, uh, target for it too? Less than it used to be. Um, we started, yeah. we started with it being 17 IBUs and, um, I steadily eat every year, like take 50 grams of, of bittering hops out of the recipe. And I just keep liking the beer more. And I think people drink more of it. So it's probably now like 14 IBUs, but we, I think on the board, we haven't changed our year round lineup here since the right. day we opened. Um, that's probably not very common in the industry, but our four beers that are always on, are exactly the four that we opened with four and a half years ago. So it still says 17 IBUs. It's probably more like 15. It's an interesting experience because when I first poured it, you know, it had that American light lager, like slight sweetness to it. And the deeper I get into the glass, the drier it, it actually tastes. And so now as I'm, as I'm drinking it, it, uh, I don't perceive that same kind of sweetness. It was an endearing thing early on. And then, um, you know, it has developed to this experience of dryness as I get down into it. Well, that's kind of what we shoot for is, is drinkability. Um, they, in Germany, they, you know, suffig is, is the term, which, you know, just balance, try to get balance and drinkability. I literally, the beers I love the most are beers where I physically have to be like, whoa, I gotta, I gotta like not drink another. I want another one so bad. Like I'm thirsty for another one, but I, I also like beer and I don't want to not like beer. So you kind of have to force yourself to stop. And, and really we, on the American lager, we just kind of target a Hellas. 
um, maybe on the lower end of gravity of, of what a Hellas would be. Yeah. Um, but, but the idea is how do we make the American lager more like a Hellas? And, and our very first American lager, you know, year one, year two, it was too corn driven. It was too American lagerish, And I, we were making a Hellas as a, as a summer seasonal every year. And I just kept thinking, I would like pour an American lager half a glass and then top it off with Hellas and be like, okay, that, yeah, that's better. So we just need to make this kind of old world American lager more like a Hellas. And, and how do you do that? You just, I don't know, look at the specs on a Hellas yeah. from all the way from the, from the grain, you know, when you take corn, all of its characteristics and six row and its characteristics, if you haven't done too bad of a job growing it and you average those out, this is something I talked about in the article, you hit like European two row target values. Um, so from a grain perspective, from a farming perspective, try to try to do that corn six row blend to hit what a perfect Hellas Pilsner malt would be. And then on the, on the, the brewing side, the same thing, you know, original gravity pHs all throughout temperature steps, attenuation, just kind of mimic a great German Hellas, but make it with corn and six row and um you're going to improve the drinkability and i think we've we've done that it's still hard we're we're not we're not nailing it every single time um sometimes we push it too far with with grain where we you know are out of spec on something and it's like ah that was a little bit are people noticing that probably some probably not very many but if we don't push it every day then i feel like we also kind of get lazy and and then we're just doing token use i don't want to say that we we use a token amount of grain you right. know we we've used almost 100,000 pounds of corn wheat and barley that we've grown on our farm in the last four and a half years if it was 10,000 then i'd say maybe that's kind of token use we're playing up the cool stuff we're doing but not actually doing right. much of it right. so trying to achieve an authentic balance of of using enough of your own stuff but also knowing when not to force it has been um, something that, that we continually try to get right. Um, t- talk to me a little bit about hops in the, in the American lager. Um, um, you know, is there a variety that you, you lean on? Yeah. So pretty much every beer we make in the brewery is bittered with Magnum. Um, yeah. for, for our big hoppy bitter beers, we'll use extract. Um, I'm a fan of, of extract in big beers, um, where I worked in Germany, uh, it's, it's pretty common in the industry. It's a good, clean bitterness. I think most brewers nowadays will admit yeah. that where maybe five or 10 years ago, they'd, they'd say it was a cheap substitute. It's a great way to get alpha acid. Um, so we use Magnum essentially for all of our beers for a bittering addition. And then on the American um, crystal is, is what we use in, as an aroma addition, you know, on our big 15 barrel system, I think it's like 250, might be 300 grams of, of crystal. So it's not much, but it's just enough to kind of, um, crystal's a great American, um, cross with German noble parents. So it's got that classic German floral herbal, um, character with just maybe a, a touch of American fruitiness. And, um, I didn't want to go all German with the hops because it's an American lager. I wanted yeah. to use an American hop, but definitely wanted one that, that would taste and fit in a, in a pale, low ABV lager. Yeah. Let's, um, I just cracked open, uh, one of your, your Hefeweizen and uh, I know wheat is another thing, another grain, uh, that we haven't talked about so far on the podcast, but let's talk about the kind of conception of this, uh, you know, the inspiration for it and then how you integrate, 
this kind of this estate grown wheat into your Hefeweizen? So wheat's easy um, here in central Illinois. It, it grows well. We use a variety called Erisman um, that was bred um, at a university uh, six miles from here, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, <laughs> right? So it, it, um, its entire development time was being grown in experimental fields in the town that we brew beer and where we, where we grow the grain, right? So our wheat field, we always plant a nice big wheat field directly adjacent to our beer garden here at the brewery um, to show people that, you know, you can grow stuff other than corn and soybeans in central Illinois. And oh, by the way, this is wheat that we use in the wheat beer that you're drinking right now. And then people are like, whoa, that's cool. And I'm like, yeah, I, as a farmer and a brewer, that is about as cool as it gets. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Arisman wheat. That's the is field a, that is pictured on the, the photo of Matt uh, that accompanies this podcast on the website. Yep, that's right. Um, so that is a winter, um, soft winter red wheat. Um, soft red winter wheat is the right way to say that. Um, it is uh, a dream agronomically. And I'm, I'm chewing on some right now to and tasting the grain. Again, thank you for sending these uh, the samples, Matt. So um, I'm sorry for interrupting you. Uh, talk to me a little bit more about the, the variety on this. So Arisman winter wheat um, is great for us. We plant it. Um, as soon after the Hessian fly free date is over and in, here in the uh, central part of the state, that is October 1st and as close to that date um, as we can plant it, we get it in the ground. It establishes very nicely in the fall. It um, doesn't winter kill. It doesn't matter. So I, I, I mentioned that Violetta died um, back in January 2019. Yeah. Well, we had Arisman planted directly next to it and the Arisman was like, I don't care. Yeah, it was cold. I'm still going to live and make, <laughs> make great wheat babies. Right, so right. Um, it's got good disease resistance and it malts very nicely. So we, as hard as barley has been for us, wheat has been um, relatively easy. And it's just a, I, I'm marveling at the head on this because it's a absolutely spectacular, as you'd expect from a, from a wheat beer, just, you know, the, that protein just produces beautiful, beautiful foam. Um, so talk to me about recipe inspiration on this and, um, you know, again, how you, you know, uh, worked with this recipe using this now estate grown wheat, you know, working through you know, any of those, you know, that kind of malting challenge and then, you know, into the brew house. Yep. So we, um, there's really no secret. This is a 300 year old beer style that hasn't really changed much and we just try to execute it, um, well, and then, and then get it to consumers fresh. I think that wheat beer is a beer that suffers in transport. Um, I, I try a lot of German wheat beers on the shelf warm and I'm like, yeah, this is not a great style, but in Bavaria, it's the most popular beer style by volume. And, um, where I worked, uh, we sold an absolute ton of it and I loved it. A big part of that, I think is don't overthink it. You know, we, we just, just over 50% wheat. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about pushing that up. I, I was reading about, um, some brands that have gone up 60 or 70. And, and I think our louder ton could probably handle that. Um, but really if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We, we stay in the low 50%, um, wheat, um, pale barley malt. And then we, we add just a little bit of, um, Carahel, Vireman Carahel. Um, I'm a, I'm a fan of, we could also probably put some Munich in. Um, but I found that I kind of prefer that the Carahel over the Munich or else the, the beer tends to dry out a little bit too much. I, I like a little bit of residual sweetness that, um, that Carahel gives us, but that's only at like 5% or so. So it's, it's very low addition. We 
don't do anything unique. I, you know, this is a yeast-driven beer. Um, you kind of have to just get out of the way and, and let the yeast eat um, and treat them right. Obviously, you know, under-pitching, under-oxygenating. Um, in German, there's, there's a saying uh, to make wheat beer, die Hefe muss schwitzen. The, the yeast has to sweat. You've got to kind of stress it out. And um, so we beat this, this yeast up a little bit, and it, it makes the style that um, is kind of my, my go-to year-round favorite because wheat beer has got this you know, nice complexity in the aroma, but it's also incredibly drinkable. Um, it's also a favorite of mine because I can turn that beer quicker than I can my lagers. You know, our lagers we give a full six weeks to. I, I give the wheat beer four weeks, which is still a lot longer sure. than most people probably do, but we, um, we like to brew pretty slow and traditionally. Um, but I do like that I can turn a lot more of that beer. It's, it's probably close to half our volume here at the brewery. It's definitely our number one selling beer and uh, it's, it's helped that it's not a lager. So I can, so I can turn it a little bit quicker. Um, I think one thing to think about on, on a wheat beer is you got to pay attention, um, as a grower to make sure that your free amino nitrogen is not high. Um, your target on a, on a wheat malt is generally lower and that's by design to again, stress that yeast out and not give it, you know, fan is like snacks. It's really great accessible food for, for yeast. And one way you can add layered stress to a wheat beer fermentation is to starve it of free amino nitrogen a little bit. Um, and luckily wheat just kind of naturally likes to do that. Um, we have not had the struggles that we have had with our barley in that regard. So, um, but really I don't think we do anything that, that probably a, a thousand American brewers and a thousand German <laughs> breweries do with, with a wheat beer, except, right. um, you know, at the beer garden, you can, you can see the wheat where it's growing and, and, um, it's just an, it's a beer style that has survived and been popular for so long because of its simplicity and you just don't need to do anything to it to, to keep it great. Just execute it and drink it fresh. Like don't let a wheat beer sit around or else now a Weizenbach, right? Cause the booze, you can, you can definitely that thing. Um, I'd give our Weizenbach a year in a keg if it's been cold stored and it's, you know, it mellows out. It kind of rounds out a little bit, but a, a wheat beer, a Hefeweizen standard ABV strength. I, I think a key is, to brew it precisely and then just enjoy it quickly and and there's no rocket science there's some solid haze stability in here which is certainly something that um, brewers whether they're brewing hefeweizen or whether they're brewing hazy american ipa um you know are all chasing uh, is this uh just a, a relatively standard mash regimen in order to uh, to kind of lock that in at uh, you know various steps yeah we um, we don't even do a protein rest on this beer. It's really the only beer that we don't do a protein rest on. I, I think that, um, our grain bill brings enough protein to the table and we don't need to add anything to it. There's the whole talk about a, f uh, ferulic acid. I can't say that ferulic acid. Ferulic there we go. There, there we go. That acid that starts with an F, you know, and where that gets generated. And that's a precursor to the, um, the clove characteristics. Uh, so, and I like kind of a balanced wheat beer, one that isn't too banana or too clove. It's kind of right down the middle. So um, if you do mash too low um, in the protein side, I think you do, um, you can drive a little bit more clove. So we, we actually don't even do a protein rest on that. Although we've got a four, we do, we do multiple sack steps, sacrification steps, but we don't do a protein rest on the wheat beer. Hmm. Beyond the beers that you're currently making and your current approach to agriculture, um, are there projects on the horizon 
that you are in early stages on or, uh, you know, some stuff that's on your list of things to tackle next, um, you know, for Riggs Beer Company or for the farm itself? Um, well, we just put up a silo here at the brewery for, to store our corn, hmm. uh, in it's, we also needed a road sign. So we, we kind of killed two birds with one stone, put our logo up there. I, that we've invested in, in a big PTO driven cor- uh, grain vacuum where we can move grain, um, more gently than we can with augers. Um, we installed, um, the vacuum system onto our grain bins at the farm so that we can more gently handle and move the grain. I, I think that's kind of the direction we're going is how do we do a better job from the seed to the glass? We're, you know, we're not looking to expand really. We're, yeah. we're my brother and I and our wives own the company outright. We don't have an investor. Um, we're at a very nice size at two to 3000 barrels with a healthy tap room and beer garden. Um, if you're not happy with that, I think you might, then you're probably not a brewer. You're probably an investor and I'm not an investor. I, we're at a stable position that, um, we still have control. We have a small team that we work with and they're really passionate and driven and it's fun. Um, we're not in a rush to, to go and mess that up cause we just want more barrels. So, um, I think investing in, we, we rent out, or, or I guess we cust- have our grain custom cleaned. We don't have our own grain cleaner. We have our own corn cleaner, which is a little bit different, but the small grains are all cleaned somewhere else. I think someday it makes sense for us um, to bring that in-house. Um, Eric's not, not exactly a spring chicken. Someday we're, we're probably going to assume um, we'll probably buy the, the malt house when he's ready to give it up and bring that internal as well. Uh, but as far as like, um, is Riggs beer company company coming out with a hard seltzer, I'm going to go ahead and say, um, that will, that will absolutely never happen. You're not going to grow like sugar hazy- cane on the farm there. No, you know, I don't like hazy IPAs. I got nothing against anybody that puts, you know, right, a donut right. in a, in a boil. If they want to do that, I, I just don't like those beers and we're, we're not going to make them. There's enough breweries that, that are, so we're not looking to branch out into different categories or anything like that. I think we just want to kind of get better at what we do and maybe someday not have to pay the bank a monthly payment. That'd be pretty sweet. I came, you know, I spent several years in Germany in the industry where a total of three years. So I guess a couple of years, um, a lot of the breweries that are most successful, there are breweries that paid off debt and have just kind of operated and focused on their home market and quality. And that's how you have a brewery, not go bankrupt, um, is you, you kind of live modestly, make, um, a product that you're passionate about and you're focused on and don't make the bank a ton of money, right? If you can get out from underneath that, like pay that to your people. And that's why they won't leave. Cause you're like, Hey, I could have paid the bank $7,000 a month on this loan, or I could just split that difference and pay it to the, the 10 people full time here. And now why the hell would they leave? That sounds like a lot more, a better investment and makes your business better in the long run. If you can shift that value that you're making, um, away from like leaving the company, leaving the brewery and k- keeping it in the brewery. And that, that's a good way to safeguard, um, your brewery. I think that, you know, that kind of relates to the the question that we typically end with, which, uh, you know, is what does success look like for you? And it sounds to me like building that legacy, building that thing that feeds uh, and takes care of all the people that are a part of the business and the thing that maintains this family legacy, uh, you know, through, that from this fifth generation onto future generations is a pretty important thing for you. Yep. 
I, definitely on the farm side. I mean, it, it sounds weird, but I'm not as emotionally attached to this brewery as I am the farm. Um, I, I love the brewery. Sure, I'm here sure. 75 hours a week. This is my baby. Um, but, you know, someday if I'm, my brother and I, we're, we're old and we don't want to work really hard in a brewery anymore. It's not that we've ever said, you know, this thing has to now be a five generation brewery. It'd be cool if that turns out to be the case, but really the non-negotiable is, is that, you know, we, we can keep the farm because that's kind of the original, original reason why we did this. Um, we want to farm it in a more sustainably, um, positive way. Like I, I want to shift as much as we can, as quick as we can away from some of the practices that I think are, are good in the short term for, for commodity farming, but not good in the long term. Um, so sustainability is a big thing for us. I think we've, we've achieved a lot of success so far. I mean, financially a little bit, but, uh, every year we, we publish a sustainability report where we talk about all of our numbers and how much, um, input we use and all the other stuff agronomically, what we're doing, that's, that's better. We're, we just got designated a, a five-star farm, um, from the local soil and water conservation district for, for our wheat production here at the brewery. Those that's success. We haven't closed um, during coronavirus. That's success. Yeah. We've pay, we've paid all of our people. I mean, we're, it's easy when you're a small team to say, okay, we're going to fire through this and we're going to shift into package. Something I didn't mention, we, we didn't can before August, or I'm sorry, April. Wow. We were draft only for the first four years of our brewery. And then we're like, oh, so the draft market's not going to happen anymore for a while. So we shifted very quickly into canning and that allowed us to retain our people full time. And so we're going to keep making liquid and we're going to put it in a can and um, that's success. If you can, if you can kind of pivot real quick and not crush your team and your people and your business, that's success. I think really it's, we're, we've been, I'm really happy with what we've been able to do in the last, in, in the first four and a half years of the venture. But at the same time, your, your work's never, ever, ever done. So you just got to keep, fighting every day to get better and more efficient you know can we use less water for every barrel that we make in a year probably how do we do that oh do we need to invest in something to help us do that okay well let's put it on the list is it the number one next investment or is it number 10 on the list and every year you just kind of invest reinvest that money into the brewery and uh, before you know it you, you look at where you've come and you're like man this is a lot cooler, cooler thing than it was four years ago, even. Yeah, yeah. Well, well said. Nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GND Chillers, of course, including uh, Riggs Beer Company. HS1228 takes you all the way to the heart of the West Coast. Mountain Rose Herbs offers the highest quality organic herbs, spices, and teas. Yakima Valley Hops is your hop source, whether you're brewing five gallons or five barrels. Abe Beverage Equipment offers turnkey brewing and packaging solutions, and Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions are the best way to support this very podcast. Um, Matt Riggs, Riggs Beer Company, Urbana, Illinois. Um, if people want to learn more about what you do, where do they find you all? We have a website. It's probably fairly dated. Um, we have Facebook and Instagram that we put stuff on occasionally, but um, we don't have anybody that's really full-time into that. Um, if you're ever driving through Central Illinois, come by, come by the brewery. Um, back when the world was normal, we, we gave really, I think, great tours. We, my brother or I are the only two that we ever, you know, have give the tour because we want somebody to be able to ask any question. It's a two hour long tour. So hopefully, you know, if there's a vaccine or, or whatever happens and we can start doing that again, 
sign up for one of those in advance. I guarantee you, you'll really like it because we get down into the weeds and obviously at, towards the end, we start drinking all the beers. And um, <laughs> that's the best way to do it is to come out and visit us because we're, we're not ever going to like exp expand the radius very far. And, and our online presence is admittedly probably pretty weak and boring. Matt, thanks for joining me for the podcast. This has been a fascinating conversation and I really appreciate what you're doing to, you know, build this estate approach to brewing ingredients and also uh, keep Six Row Brewing in North America alive. Yeah, cheers. Cheers, Jamie. Thanks. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.